Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we speak with a candidate for the Office of Prosecutor in Charlottesville, Virginia, who is campaigning against mass incarceration. And we speak with a student activist at American University in Washington, D.C., who is campaigning for justice in Palestine and against the militarization of U.S. police forces. It's my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Jeff Fogel. He is a candidate for Commonwealth's attorney here in Charlottesville, Virginia. In other words, prosecutor. Uh, After graduating from Rutgers Law School back in the year I was born, 1969, Jeff received a fellowship to work providing legal services to indigent residents of Newark. After several years, he left uh, to become a highly touted criminal defense lawyer. And then to accomplish more, he went into civil rights practice and hoped to have a larger impact on the criminal justice system, which he is still trying to do and has been having for many years. He practiced in New Jersey, New York, Puerto Rico, and the last 10 years, Virginia. He's been executive and legal director of the ACLU of New Jersey and legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights while teaching civil rights, civil liberties, and trial practice at Rutgers and at NYU School of Law. I could go on. Jeff Fogel, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. Uh, it's wonderful to have you on here, and it's wonderful that you're running for Commonwealth's attorney. Uh, I am uh, certainly would welcome any of your uh, opponents on the program, but uh, am going to be voting for you. Uh, what, what's your platform? Well, my main concerns, and I think that's been true now for a couple decades, along with many other people who've looked at the question, is mass incarceration and the inequitable distribution of that incarceration, uh, specifically that uh, African Americans are grossly overrepresented in the criminal justice system, to the point where, for example, here in Virginia, 60% of the prisoners are African American in a state where the population is 20%. And how does that... We've got a huge amount of people in prison who don't belong there, costing us a fortune, And we're actually harming ourselves in the process. People have to recognize that most people who go to jail actually get out, some of them within a few years. And after a short period of time, uh, the prison becomes almost a laboratory for becoming more of a criminal. And so if we can keep people who otherwise would not continue to engage in criminal acts out of prison, we're going to be doing a lot, lot better for everybody. So the focus, as I said, has been mass incarceration and racial disparities. So when you look at mass incarceration, you think about what's put us in this position so that the United States has increased its prison population by some 600% over the last three decades. Well, clearly one of the contributing factors is the war on drugs. And in that regard, what concerns me a lot is that the people of Charlottesville, like the people elsewhere, have no say, or at least to this point, in the extent to which their community uh, participates in this war on drugs. Uh, We've got a drug task force that's gung-ho, part of the war on drugs, and it's not getting anybody anywhere. Uh, So we need to cut back. As I said, I would not prosecute mere possession of marijuana cases, and I would look at every other possession case or every other case where the person appeared to have been addicted to drugs 
and look for an alternative solution to the criminal justice system. Uh, we may need some more resources in terms of um, programs for addicts, but we certainly do have mental health services in the community. We do have some assistance for, um, for addicts, and we do have people who can assist in getting people houses and jobs and so on. We need to keep people out of that. Secondly, is driving mass incarceration was the lengthy sentences that have been given out and increased over a period of time. One of the causes of that was the 1994 Crime Act, sometimes referred to as the Biden Crime Act, supported by Clinton, both of them, and a lot of other people in Congress, which gave billions of dollars to the states to build prisons so long as they instituted mandatory minimum sentences. I think there's a widespread recognition, both on the federal and state level, hasn't done anything for public safety and has caused a huge increase in the number of people remaining in prison and remaining there through their entire lives and costing us a fortune when it gets to geriatric care in the prisons, when there's no reason to be keeping people at that late, at that late stage. So we need to avoid bringing cases that involve mandatory minimum sentences, which we can do. We can find alternatives. We need to find cases. There are many cases where people only go to jail for a short time. Nonetheless, they're charged with a felony. Well, a felony will destroy your life. A misdemeanor won't. So we can come back and, and charge people with misdemeanors who don't have to be in a state prison, even if it requires a short term uh, in, in jail. For example, I saw a case recently where somebody was sentenced to 102 years, uh, a series of so felonies, which were burglaries or break-ins, with all but two years uh, suspended, meaning they were going to spend two years in jail. Uh, and 98 years, or rather 100 years on probation. We don't need to tie up our probation services for 100 years for somebody like this. And then finally, the issue becomes how the sentencing goes. And, of course, if you charge people with the appropriate crime, instead of uh, piling six or seven crimes on to one in order to force them to plead guilty, if you start off charging them with the appropriate crime, and even if they go to trial, there's only so much time that the judge or jury can give them. And we need to start reducing the average amount of time spent in prison if we're going to address the problem of mass incarceration. And then there are other elements involving racial justice which have to be looked at very carefully. I've been fighting with the city now for four years to get access to the reports about stop and frisk. Well, in the context of being in the prosecutor's office, we'll take a very, very close look at every single case that involves a, a frisk and a search to see whether or not that search was lawful, whether the search was appropriate and proportionate to the level of the offense. And we'll look at every case involving our Drug Enforcement Task Force, particularly the cases involving informants and cases where they have uh, tried to set up people who are simply addicts and try to change that culture and that philosophy. And if it can't be done by the police department, with the encouragement of the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, I believe it can be done. So it's basically looking at everything that is the source of mass incarceration, reducing the number of people going into the system, into the criminal justice system at all, and certainly having a significant impact on the number of people going to prison and the number of people charged with felonies as compared to misdemeanors. 
So that's that's basically the program. It sounds like a smart program. It sounds fact-based rather than uh, myth-based. Uh, what about the, the problem of bail, of how many people are behind bars before any any trial or conviction whatsoever, and what can a prosecutor do about that? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because that is another main, main issue. Uh, if you look at our own regional jail here in Charlottesville, you'll see that it's overcrowded, and that's largely as a result. Well, two, two concerns. One is state prisoners backed up because there's not enough room in the state prison system. And secondly, people in jail awaiting trial. And there are certainly many, many, too many people in jail awaiting trial simply, simply because they don't have the money for bail. Now, there's a variety of alternatives that can be put into place. Uh, there's a group out in Augusta County that's come from California called Nexus, and they've actually raised money in order to put it up for poor defendants. That's one route to go. Another route to go, of course, is the prosecutor's office is in a position in every single case to argue what appropriate bail is. Uh, and this prosecutor's office, at least under me, will be very, very careful that nobody be held in jail simply because they cannot afford bail. That's just a system that is too punitive of people simply for being poor. You you also have said on your website, tell people your website, by the way, I don't remember the address. It's Fogel, F-O-G-E-L, for C-C-A, that's Fogel for C-C-A, dot U-S. Fogel for C-C-A dot U-S. Uh, you also say there that you want to assure that your office would be a death penalty-free uh, operation and that you want to avoid, and presumably this sometimes involves threatening the death penalty, you want to avoid overcharging crimes in order to get plea bargains. Um, both sound very admirable, and of course I would love to see the death penalty abolished in the state of Virginia, uh, but... What sort of resources would be needed if more people actually went to trial? Because, you know, not everybody realizes, I think, that plea bargain is mostly what happens to most people. Well, that's a very interesting question. But I would say that people who have instituted some similar programs elsewhere in the country <clears throat> have not seen a significant increase in the number of people going to trial. If you do your job, uh, both the police department and the prosecutor's office, and you show your job, now, in the state of Virginia, there's no obligation on the part of a prosecutor to show any evidence to the defendants. Of course, there's the federal constitution, which requires prosecutors to divulge any favorable information to the defendant, but often the prosecutor doesn't know what may be favorable to the defendant, not knowing what the defendant's defense is. So, in our own city, uh, they have what they call an open book policy which is to say they, they do show defense lawyers some part of their file. They will not allow defense lawyers to copy it. But, but where I practiced law starting, you know, 48 years ago, when I showed up at an arraignment in Newark, New Jersey, I was provided with the full file by the prosecutor's office. And it was just uh, everybody knew this is not a sporting event. We have to share all the information we have because people have to remember there's a disparity in resources as well. The state has at its disposal police department and a prosecutor's office. The defendant oftentimes has an appointed lawyer being paid very little money or a public defender who's overworked. And so there already is a disproportionate amount of uh, resources in the state side. So it's important that the state share that information. And my experience with being shared information 
as a defense lawyer was, the more information you have that points to the guilt of your client, the more likely it is you're going to plead guilty. And even though we may not be giving out plea bargains as such, it certainly has an impact on what the sentencing is, both from the prosecutor's point of view and from a judge's point of view. So yeah. uh, you can't control everything, but we can control an awful lot from the position of Commonwealth attorney. There, there seems, Jeff, to have been this vicious cycle of understanding over recent decades in which news media choose to report on violent crimes uh, and not to report on people's lives saved from uh, uh, or destroyed by uh, unnecessary prosecution and, and, and unnecessarily harsh penalties. Uh, and and that feeds a public understanding that the more lives you ruin, the more people you lock up for decades, uh, the better off we are, uh, which feeds the election of prosecutors uh, who have that platform. Uh, is it possible that Charlottesville's population is wise enough and somehow educated itself outside of uh, mainstream uh, U.S. communication systems uh, that we'll vote for a wise policy? Uh, and, and would you as prosecutor have any means of getting, you know, local media outlets uh, to cover a different side of the story? Well, I don't know about the ability to uh, convince local media outlets, but I also get disturbed by the fact that every time somebody's arrested, their picture shows up in the paper. Now, I know the state law requires the police departments to disclose that information, but there's certainly nothing that requires newspapers to publish it, and I look forward to sitting down with the top of their staffs in talking about why they need to publish it because it seems to me it's inherently prejudicial against the person whose picture is out there who hasn't been convicted of anything. Now, if we're looking for somebody and they need to publish the picture, that's a very different question. Uh, but public safety has nothing to do with displaying pictures of everybody who's been arrested. And I think that leads to a perception that all of those people are guilty uh, and that that's really happening all the time and we don't have any a success stories or be disaster stories about the criminal justice system. Uh, for example, I saw a gentleman about six weeks ago. Yeah, thirty seconds. You know, he was busted. Uh, it was the uh, the, the uh, drug task force. They told him a small amount of, of drugs, fifty dollars worth of cocaine. He spent a year in jail. They telling him that uh, if he'll just talk, they'll get him out the next day. He gets acquitted, and he goes home. He doesn't have a job. His family went on welfare, uh, food stamps, and so on. And his life is pretty much destroyed, and nobody gives a darn about him. Uh, so we have to look at the injustices of the criminal justice system as well as uh, the injustice to the people of those who commit serious crimes, violent crimes, prey on the community. We do need to keep the community safe in that regard. And we need those powers in the hands of someone with some restraint and thoughtfulness. Uh, yeah. Jeff Fogel, the, the website is fogel4cca.us. Thanks for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David, very much. It is my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Ntebo Mokuena. She is a senior at American University and is majoring in political science with a gender, race, and politics concentration along with a minor in art history and a certificate in women, policy, and political leadership. Phew. She was born and raised in the D.C. area and... 
on campus is involved with Students for Justice in Palestine, which is a decentralized student group that supports the BDS movement and self-determination of Palestinians. The group is part of the Community Action and Social Justice Coalition. Uh, very good to know that's happening at American University. Ntebo Mokwena, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. So I uh, ran into you at a uh, forum that uh, was on C-SPAN that we both spoke at uh, related to gun violence, uh, and I wanted to ask you about your activism related to police militarization and related to uh, U.S.-Israel police exchanges. Uh, what can you tell me has been happening in, in recent weeks? So, especially in the age of Trump, given that he's one of the most pro-Israel presidents this country's ever seen, it's really important for the general public to be aware of not only police violence in Israel, but the police exchange programs between the IDF and several U.S. police forces. So what I can tell you right now is that over 12 states, including the U.S. Capitol Police, have exchange programs with the IDF, um, this includes the Baltimore Police Department, in which Freddie Gray was killed in April 2015. A lot of these programs are privately and publicly funded. Some of the organizations which support financially um, police exchange programs are the Anti-Defamation League, American Jewish Committee's Project Interchange, and the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs and lastly, Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange. And this is through the through Georgia State University. And they, so they have police exchanges between Georgia police and IDF. Um, and so some of the things that are taught in these programs are Krav Maga, which is a defense system created by the IDF. And it's different from martial arts in that it takes some of the most brutal aspects of real martial arts and uses them to enforce violence on Palestinians and now U.S. citizens. So the parallels between the black experience and the Palestinian experience with regards to police aren't abstract. It's very clear what's happening. Um, some other aspects of police exchange programs include border policing, prison operations, military and cybersecurity technologies, and urban policing. So again, you can see how this has been implemented in the U.S. Unfortunately, these programs are pretty transparent, but there have been movements by pro-Palestinian activists to open up these programs, see what corporate and public ties these programs have, and to be more aware of what is actually happening in the training programs. And so in addition to these exchange programs, the U.S. government gives over $3.8 billion in military aid to Israel. And so this includes helicopters, guns, bombs, you name it. And so seeing the rise of police militarization in the U.S., again, it's not abstract. These are the same weapons used here and abroad. 
I, I, I don't know about you, Table, but I've been a little bit encouraged in recent days uh, by protests on behalf of refugees and immigrants, uh, people actually expressing uh, concern and taking risks for strangers unknown to themselves uh, out of human sympathy. And, uh, and I wonder if you see potential uh, in this new era for for growth in uh, in the boycott divestment sanctions campaign uh, in resistance to U.S. support for uh, for its own wars and wars by others, including all the billions of dollars of free weapons uh, to Israel for its crimes. Is there is there an opportunity for for expansion here? I definitely think so. I've also felt similarly going to a few rallies downtown in D.C. I've seen a lot more pro-Palestine signs and seen many Palestinian flags, a lot more than I used to see at rallies. And I think people are starting to, you know, wake up and see what's happening in Israel and how similar it is to the U.S., what's happening here in the U.S. I'm really hoping that this is an opportunity for people to learn more about BDS and see how they can get involved. On campus, we have several events to help students and faculty learn more about Palestine. And so every year we have the Israeli Apartheid Week in March, and we're hoping that more students and faculty will get involved through that. Do you think that that a large section of the U.S public is even aware uh, of what you were talking about earlier that uh, you know as i understood it numerous police departments involved in the in the crackdown against the public in baltimore uh, had had officers trained by the israeli military in israel uh, in in war tactics uh, my my little town here in charlottesville virginia i just learned this week has a, essentially a tank an armored uh, vehicle mine resistant uh, for shooting people without the police inside getting shot themselves. Uh, you know, we're militarizing local police, and the Israeli military is involved in training them to act as if they're at war against us. Do you think people even know this? And people who want to learn about it, uh, how, how can they learn about it? How can they get involved in, in resisting it? So I, I agree. I feel like a lot of people don't know that this is happening which is really unfortunate because it affects people's daily lives. And I think it's the responsibility of activists like you and I to make sure that we're disseminating this information. I think as often as we can, especially when we host events that are directly in response to the rise of Islamophobia and the Trump presidency, to make sure that we talk about what's happening and to make sure that on a local level, groups, like parents' councils, you name it, unions, know what's happening because these are affecting U.S. citizens, but also people abroad. And as, as our country starts to really organize in resistance, it's really, really important. If people want to learn more on the Internet, they can look at different Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch reports that talk about this. Even the Department, U.S. Department of Justice has issued statements saying that the IDF uses excessive force and our own police forces use excessive force. 
If you if you send me some of the best reports, we'll get them up with this show at talknationradio.org for people to to link to. Um, one of the things I appreciated about this event that we were both at at AU was the mixture of ages and races and backgrounds of the people, uh, not just the people speaking, but the people attending uh, the conference. Because when I go to events against U.S. war making, uh, they are almost always uh, very white, very old, very wealthy, relatively speaking, uh, events. But the people leading the efforts uh, for Palestinian solidarity in the United States seem to be uh, disproportionately uh, younger and much more diverse uh, than than those. There seems to be this divide. So uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on how to bridge it and how to how to get the how to get the old white folks uh, working against Israeli wars and how to get young people uh, active against U.S. wars. I I definitely hear you with that. Um, I think as we talk more about intersectionality and the the importance of elevating voices of the most marginalized, I think intergenerational organizing becomes really important and very powerful. There's a lot to learn from the anti-war movement of our parents and grandparents. And so I think one of the best ways for this to happen is for campus organizations to partner with off-campus organizations, just like the anti-gun violence event that we attended. I think it's really important for pro-Palestine groups to partner with Jewish Voice for Peace and other older generation organizations. And I think one last way it's important is for more decentralized organizations like SJP to talk more about local politics and how we can affect change with, with regards to legislation, as B- anti-BDS legislation is also on the rise. Yeah, I, I saw, uh, I got an email today about a couple of uh, elderly Palestinian activists uh, promoting themselves as survivors of the Nakba, planning a tour of events through the through the U.S. this spring. Uh, I hope things like that uh, will help. But you mentioned that, uh, and we just have a few minutes left, you mentioned that uh, Donald Trump is one of the most pro-right-wing uh, Israeli government presidents that the U.S. has had. How specifically should we go after resisting his agenda or that of his advisors or particular cabinet members? Uh, what should we do uh, differently now? I think what sets Donald Trump apart from a lot of our previous presidents is not only his explicit support for Israel and his own business ties with Israel, but the fact that he has led way to a very Islamophobic and fascist movement in the United States, the fact that he has this Muslim ban, and as we see, Israel and Palestine are often falsely conflated as a religious issue, and I think it's really important to combat that message because it isn't a religious issue. At the root, it's a political issue, it's a land issue, it's a human rights issue. And so I think that is one way we can attack the rhetoric that the pro-Israel rhetoric coming from the Trump cabinet. And I think another way is to strengthen our 
movement by working with other groups such as um, environmental justice groups that also work to expose the issues of the Trump cabinet. Very good. Uh, Tebo Mokwena, you're with Students for Justice in Palestine. Is there a is there a website for that? Yes. So we have a Facebook page. It's American University Just Students for Justice in Palestine. And we also have a Twitter handle, which is linked on our Facebook page. If you want any more information, feel free to message and like our Facebook page. We post events and different articles about what's happening. Um, here in sorry, here in the U.S. and in Israel. Wonderful. We've been speaking with Ntebo Mokuena, a senior at American University and active with Students for Justice in Palestine. Thank you uh, for pushing us old folks in the right direction. We'll get those links up at talknationradio.org. And thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.